Amen. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, this morning we are going to continue in a series, but I'll actually begin a new sub-series of the series that we've been in the middle of uh, all year. Uh, this morning we're going to start by looking at the minor prophets, which I'm assuming some of you are maybe not even aware of or familiar with at all. Uh, the minor prophets are called minor because they're the shorter books than the major prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And so, it's the very end of the Old Testament. We've been going through the entire Old Testament. So, for the next 14 weeks, we're going to take one of each of these prophets, and we're just going to look at that book as a whole and, and think about some, some things topically from the book. Now, the time stamp, the time stamp on these prophetic books is not important because they all take place in proximity, either before or after, sometime around the exile of God's people, the north into Assyria, uh, the south into, ba- into Babylon. And so we, that's all we really need to know about when these things are happening in the history behind all of the events that take place in these books. They are books about how to be faithful in difficult times, when things seem to be unraveling around you. Uh, and the aim of each of these minor prophets, or at least taken as a whole, is to get us to see our circumstances and our suffering through the lens of our theology. And I used this analogy three weeks, a few weeks ago, but I, I want to bring us back to it again because it's going to be important to us throughout the fall as we look at these books, which are in many ways very unfamiliar. So there's a great, we have a big task in front of us uh, to try to do this. But if, uh, if you have a fancy camera, then it probably has a bunch of different lenses, right? There are zoom lenses, and then there are lenses that allow certain shades of light or amounts of light to come in, and then there's lenses that can take the shot and make it different colors. The shot is always the same. What, what makes it different is the lens that you use. The lens enhances or it changes or it at least makes the shot look a certain way. And so you can look at God through the lens of your circumstances. In other words, you can allow your circumstances, especially hard circumstances, to color your view of God in a certain way. And that's what the Bible refers to as unbelief. Unbelief is looking at God through the lens of your circumstances, particularly hard circumstances. So you're going through a hard time and you say, man, my life is really hard. And then you kind of start from that point, go back into your theology and you have to make sense of what you know of God in light of the things that are happening to you. And too often we say, you know, man, this is a really hard time. God must be angry with me. It's a really hard time I'm going through. God must not be the God of love that I thought he was. And what we're doing is, is we're viewing, we're allowing our circumstances to be the lens through which we view our theology. And that is what the Bible calls unbelief. Christians don't view God through the lens of their circumstances. They do the opposite. They view their circumstances through the lens of their theology. We view our circumstances through the lens of what we know about God, and that's what the Bible means when it talks about faith. Faith is looking at all of your life through the lens of your theology. And so each week we're going to take a particular book in the Minor Prophets and meditate on a particular attribute of God as a way of systematically and thematically looking at each book. And this morning we start with this book of Hosea. I don't know why the Lord does this, but it seems that every time we have to talk about sex in big church, it's always when the little kids are still, or when the elementary kids are here. So parents, this is a, probably an R, I mean, it's PG-13, maybe shading towards R-rated story. I'm going to try to make it as PG-13 or PG, or I don't think I can get any further than that, okay? But it's in the Bible, and it's there for a reason, and so... I guess it's my job to just spark conversations that probably should be happening in your houses anyway. So I'll take that mantle this morning. But let's look at this book, of uh, this story of the prophet Hosea. 
uh, from uh, the book of Hosea, which is the first of the minor prophets. We're going to read from chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, and, and chapter 14. And you can follow along with me in your worship folder, and, uh, and uh, it'll all be on the screen behind me. One of the reasons I'm reading this morning is because there's some uncomfortable stuff here, and it's just better for me to do it on days like this <laughs> than to ask somebody who might get embarrassed. Because I, and I might blush, so... Uh, Forgive me if that's the case, but let's read together, okay? When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Delibam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leptic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods, And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But I will heal their apostasy, and I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. This is God's word. The theme of this book... And really the theme that we're going to look out this morning is God's steadfast love. You see that many places there in those verses, his hesed love. And the word occurs over and over again in this book, and it combines the ideas of love and loyalty. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And so if you're going to survive the painful times in life that are inevitable in a fallen world, then you have to know that God loves you with hesed love. And that's what Hosea is trying so hard to communicate to God's people and to us here in this book. So there are two things this morning, uh, two things, and, um, don't, and don't think two things means it's going to be a shorter sermon. My, my daughter Sarah, who had to be in here this morning, told me before I got out of bed this morning, oh, I, you're preaching today, aren't you? And I said, yes, and she said, oh, your sermons are so long. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sorry, how long should they be? Five minutes. I said, well, we'll try for 30. How about that? Okay, that's about as good as I can do. But So we're going to get through this quickly this morning if we can because we have communion and other things going on. But two things, only two. 
And that is, at first, as we read this book, here's what I'm hoping will happen, and I think here's what Hosea means uh, to happen to us as we read. First, as we read, we should imaginatively become Gomer. But an interesting thing happens. As we read and as we listen and as we imaginatively become Gomer, something begins to happen in our, in our hearts. As we become Gomer, uh, what that leads to is we also ultimately, imaginatively become Hosea. So that's what the process of the Christian life is. I first become Gomer, and then once I become Gomer, know God's love for me, and begin to delight in it, something begins to happen to me, and I become like this man, Hosea. And so let's look at those two things together this morning, can we? The first thing here, first thing that should happen as we read this story together is that we should imaginatively become Gomer. Gomer, which maybe the most unfortunate part of Gomer's life was that her parents named her Gomer. Right? But Gomer was a prostitute. And in most cases, that means that there was a horrible backstory that we're not given. When we meet this woman, she's already a prostitute, but we can assume that her whole life has been filled with tragedy and pain and betrayal. And then Hosea shows up, this decent man, a man of God, a man sent by God. And again, we don't have the details, but we can imagine a romance that leads to a proposal And this had to have taken Gomer by complete surprise, like a dream that was too good to be true. Hosea loves her and rescues her from her slavery. They start a life together. They have a family in in, in chapter 1, three kids together. And so this is, and this will date me a little bit, but this is Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, right? I mean, this is... The knight in shining armor on the white horse riding in to save the damsel in distress and they live happily ever after. But that is the Hollywood version of the story. In this story, the problem isn't that there is no knight to come to the rescue. The problem is that after Gomer has been saved and she's begun to experience happiness and safety under the care and the protection of a husband that loves her, she chooses instead to leave him and her kids and her good life and to go back into slavery and sin. And the point, the point of the story is, is that we're Gomer. When we read and we imaginatively become Gomer, what happens is, is we begin to learn a number of valuable lessons. There are valuable lessons for us here in this book, a number of them. Let me just mention a few first. We learn what sin is. Right In chapter 3, there's a link between Gomer's unfaithfulness and adultery, verse 1, and Israel's sin. Hosea's love has rescued this woman from a life of sexual slavery, and yet she goes back, she chooses to go back again and again to her lovers. God's word in Jeremiah says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, for my people have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and have turned instead to cisterns that they have made for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And coming on that verse, John Piper writes that sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things. Sin is spiritual adultery. God has redeemed us from a life of death and misery and offers us abundant life in his kingdom in obedience to his commands and yet we choose over and over again to settle for something far less. We turn to other gods, verse 1. We give our love and our worship to what the Bible calls idols. And so we learn. We learn. We get a picture here of what sin is. But not only do we learn what sin is, the second thing we learn is what sin does to the heart of God. It is... It's sin is spiritual adultery. 
If that's true, then God is the husband of an unfaithful wife. And there is few things in life that bring greater pain than to have to deal with the unfaithfulness of a spouse. Sin, and, and, and what, it's a picture so we can get the insight into what our sin has done to the heart of God. Sin isn't just breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's heart. He has voluntarily bound his heart and his life up with us. He didn't have to. God didn't need us, but once he made us, he knit his heart to us. He voluntarily bound his heart to us so that his own joy is so deeply tied to us that when he sees something going wrong in our lives or when we betray him, he feels pain. He's shattered. But not only do we learn what sin is and what it does to the heart of God, we also learn why we do it. I mean, why would Gomer go back to prostitution after she'd been rescued from it? Why? Why, why would she do it? Right? And it, Why? Why would somebody do that? And I think that until I think, but why would I continue to turn away my heart from God's love to idols that can't save? And the text actually answers this question. If you look at Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4 and beyond is, is like God's end notes to the story that takes place in chapter 1 through 3, explaining things in more detail. And at the very beginning of chapter 4, God poses the problem. He says, through the prophet, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. And that's the problem, see? There's no knowledge of God. Now couple that with what the verse just before it says, at the end of chapter 3. Verse 5, God foretells Israel's repentance and he says that in their repentance they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so there will be a renewal of what Hosea calls the fear of the Lord, but he tells us what, it, what this means. He says that Israel will return to God's goodness. And that's the clue that all of our wandering into sin is because we don't believe God's good. Why would Hosea, why would Gomer... Go back to prostitution. The answer is she didn't know Hosea's goodness. She didn't trust his love. And why do we continue to give our hearts to earthly things instead of our heavenly husband? The answer is we don't know him. We don't know his goodness. There's a disconnect somewhere. We don't trust his love. And that is the source of every sin. It's the cause of, in verse 2 of chapter 4, lying and murder and stealing and adultery. It's the sin underneath the sins of impatience and discontentment. We read Ephesians 4 this past Friday, which was just marvelous for me personally. But Paul says in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander um, be put away from you along with malice and be kind to one another and tender-hearted and forgiving one another. And all of that stuff, bitterness and being angry with people and gossiping about them and, and living in unforgiveness, those are all signs of a person that doesn't know God, a person that's not resting in his love, because the opposite is what Paul says. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you, see? See, you're loved. He loves you. He has forgiven you your sins. And if you know, see, if you know that, if your heart is connected to that truth, if you've come to know just how much 
As David, I mean, I love to listen to that song that we sang a few minutes ago. And when David, I like the David Crowder version. And when he just busts into, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And it just, I, I almost, it's like, I, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But when you really begin to see just how much he loves you, there's a supernatural ability that begins to happen in you. You have the supernatural ability to be kind and forgiving. So the problem behind all our problems the dysfunction, spiritual dysfunction behind all of our other dysfunction is that we don't know God. We don't trust his love. The Jesus Storybook Bible puts it perfectly. With our sin and rebellion comes a terrible lie we can't seem to shake. And it lives on in every human heart, constantly whispering, God doesn't love me. It's the consequence of shame. Shame. Shame is the terrifying sense that something is about me is wrong. I'm not worthy of being loved. I mean, Gomer must have felt that, right? You can imagine that. We call it low self-esteem or other fancy words, but it really is far more devastating than that. The reason shame is so devastating is because it always comes in a general sense. It isn't attached to specific sins or failures. That's guilt. But shame, shame is always there. And because I can't connect it to anything specifically... There's no way really to recover from it. But then the last thing we learn from the reading of this story is that if we read and imaginatively become Gomer, there is something we learn. There is something that can heal our hearts. And that's the word I want to use, the word heal. It's a word that's very important in the book of Hosea. And we can infer from the text that Hosea forgave his wife and also conclude if, if, if Hosea is a picture in his love for his wife, of God's love for his people, then in Hosea's forgiveness of Gomer for all of her sins, we can conclude that God promises in Christ to forgive us all of our sins too. All of our sins. Not just the little ones, the really big ones too. All of our sins he's forgiven in Christ Jesus. Yes. Amen. Right? But what is fascinating about this story is what it promises. Not just that Gomer would find forgiveness, but that her husband's love for her would heal her heart. That his love would provide the cure for her shame. Look at what he said to her when he brought her home the second time. Verse 3 of chapter 3. You must dwell as mine for many days. And you shall not play the whore or belong to any man. And so I also will be to you. There's a story of Jesus' interaction with another adulteress in John chapter 8. And when the crowds have gathered to stone her for her sin... Jesus interrupts them and then they have a private moment between one another and hear his words to that woman. I do not condemn you. But it's fascinating. He doesn't stop there. He makes a great promise to her. It's hidden in his command, but it's a great promise. He says, I do not condemn you. Condemn you. Now go and sin no more. In other words, your life becoming connected to God's love begins to heal your heart of the things that have gripped you and caused you to, to languish in sin for so long before. And the reason we sin, if the reason we sin is because we don't know the depths of his love for us, then when we finally give in to it, when we finally begin to rest in his love and his care, it will heal our shame. And that's exactly, that's exactly what the book of Hosea promises at the very end in chapter 14. And it's why I included those verses because they're so beautiful. The Lord says that I I will heal their apostasy and I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel, and he shall blossom like the lily, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. 
He goes on to say in verse 7, they shall flourish like the grain, they shall blossom like the vine, they shall be like the wine of Lebanon. It's a picture, it's just a cluster of images and metaphors that is a picture of personal, emotional, psychological, and relational flourishing. And it's what can happen in any life, any marriage, any relationship, any church, any organization, if through faith our hearts can get connected to the reality of God's great love for us. That's the work of God's Spirit. It's what I'm aiming for this morning. Becoming Gomer means that in reading this book, you begin to see and experience God's hesed love for you. Hosea's love for Gomer is a parable of God's hesed love. And so before I move on, let me just, let's just meditate together for a minute by what this book means uh, through that word. How is it? We sang, oh, how he loves us. He loves us, oh, how he loves us, over and over again, right? So how is it that he loves us, and what can we glean from this story about the the specific character and nature of God's love, okay? That would heal our hearts. So just before we go to the second point, let me make a couple of, let me just make a couple of observations, okay? God's love, first, God's love for us, his Hesed love, doesn't arise uh, from any need, and that means it's genuine or it's unselfish. I said this last week, Hosea obviously didn't need Gomer, I imagine that his life was a whole lot better before she came along. (laughs) You know, she kind of complicated things. So there was no selfishness at all in his love for her. And in that, he's a picture of God who from all eternity had been happy and full. We don't make God happier or more full. He doesn't need us at all. But if he doesn't need us, then that must mean he loves us. And I, you know, that's particularly beautiful and healing to me. Because in every other love, there's always a trace of selfishness, isn't there? I mean, if you don't believe that, how many times uh, does the phone ring and you look at it and you're like, oh, I wonder what she wants. Why else would she be calling me, right? How many times does God give you the gift of you pick up the phone when somebody's calling and, hello, hey man, I just wanted you to know, I was thinking about you, how you doing? How many times does that happen to you? Doesn't happen to me very often. Right? Because it seems like in every interaction, in every interaction, you know, somebody's very nice, but even in their niceness, there's this trace of, I wonder what they want. And part of it's my cynicism. Part of it's the way things work. Because if people, if there's need, then there's selfishness, but not with God. God doesn't need anything from me. That must mean he just likes me. And that's healing. But also, God says that love goes first. It's pursuing You see, Hosea goes in search of Gomer. He doesn't wait for her to come back home. He goes and he gets her and he brings her home, just like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one that is lost. God does not love us because we first loved him. No, his love comes first. And that's beautiful and healing to me too, to know that my relationship with him is not based upon the strength of my commitment to him, but the strength of his commitment to me. God doesn't respond in love. God doesn't respond in love. He pursues in love. But also, his hesed love is one-way love, and that means it's uneven. I mean, Hosea gives much more than he, than he gets in his marriage. We know that. Because that's the way God loves us. Bitterness, bitterness in relationships is often just a weariness over the unevenness of love in relationships. It's, I'm giving, and I'm giving, and I'm giving, and I'm getting nothing in return. It's the issue in marital counseling that I come to all the time. Somebody who's exhausted because they feel like the, the, the relationship is so uneven. Hesed love means that God will always give more to me than he will ask of me. 
that though it may be true that every other love in my life might be uneven in the favor of the person that I'm trying to love instead of me, it is not so with God. In my relationship with God, his love will always be uneven, but it will always be uneven in my favor. He will always give more than he asks, but unlike me, he never wearies of it. Now, isn't that the kind of love that you've been looking for your whole life? But not only that, two more things, a couple more things. God has a love is without condition. It's free. The kind of love that's modeled here can't be dependent upon the merit of the other person. Gomer's a prostitute and then an adulteress, and yet she is the object of her husband's love. She didn't deserve his love. She didn't merit it. And what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 is startling. He says, because sometimes a person will die for someone who is good, but Christ died for us even while we were still sinners. Even in our sin, he came and he died for us, which means he's loved us at our very worst. He's loved us in our sins, and if he's loved me at my very worst, I'm pretty sure he can love me on all my many colored days. God says that love is commitment-based, not feelings-based, which means it's solid. The old creeds teach that God is without passions, which doesn't mean he doesn't have feelings, it just means he doesn't run hot and cold. God doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning. Isn't that good news? You don't have to ever worry about what kind of mood he's in. Because his love is covenantal, which means he will always act on his commitments and not his feelings. And then lastly, God's hesed love is enduring. It's forever. It's love with no exit strategy. God is not weary of loving us the way Hosea must have wearied of loving Gomer. The way we weary of loving one another. He is an inexhaustible spring of love and delight. And the overriding metaphor that we are to really anchor our hearts hope in in, this, in, these, in these verses, in this book, is that God's love is the love of a bridegroom for his bride. In that verse in Isaiah 62, which is so powerful, that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so the cardinal rule at weddings, this is, this is the image that all of these things about God's hesed love is, are really wrapped up in. And the cardinal rule at weddings is that all eyes are supposed to be on the bride. But I have a friend who says that in the moment when the bride first busts through the door in the back of the sanctuary, she always sneaks a peek at the groom because the look on his face is priceless, the look of love and joy and excitement. And, and the scripture says that just like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord God rejoices over us. And so the Gospel Coalition uh, made a... You ready back there for me, Mr. Fritz? Gospel Coalition put together a blog to illustrate that, that verse in um, Isaiah 62 by showing some pictures of bridegrooms rejoicing over their brides. My favorite one's coming in just a second. I think it's next. That's awesome. Isn't that great? Now, I know, I know that on my wedding day, I, uh, I, I had a look like that on my face. But I also know that after 17 years of marriage, my wife probably sees that kind of look um, less and less often. But isn't it good news to know, if Lamentations 3 is right, that his mercies are new every morning, that God wakes up every day and he greets you with that kind of look? Do you believe that? I know this is girly. Forgive me for how girly this is, okay? We'll have a manly sermon next week, okay? But for this week, for this week, 
Do you, see, do you believe? Do you believe that God looks at you and loves you like that? Here's how you can know for sure. In Matthew 9, the crowds ask Jesus Christ, Why do your disciples fast? And his answer is, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The bridegroom. He goes on to say, Soon I will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And here he's referring to his death on the cross. But Jesus is the bridegroom that has come to die to pay the price, to buy us away from our enslavements, just as Hosea had come to buy Gomer away from hers. And so this is the love. This is the love. This is the love that can heal our hearts. And when that happens, all kinds of things begin to happen in your life. The book is written to a a group of people about to go into exile. Their lives are about to be shattered. The hardest thing in the world to hold on to in life when it begins to fall apart around you is the conviction that God is good. When hell is unleashed, trust in his love. But that's exactly what happens here. What God is offering here is that his people, if they could come to really know the great love that he has for them, that they would be able to bear up underneath anything that might come their way. Or, if I could put it another way, when when you read this story, what begins to happen, when you imaginatively become Gomer and God's love for you starts to become real, you know what happens? You then become Hosea. When God's tested love for you becomes a living, breathing reality in your heart, it turns you into a person who can love others the way that this man Hosea loved this woman, Gomer. And that's the point of the story. It's the point of the story. The problem that God's trying to solve is there's no hesed love among the people. Everybody's looking out for number one. There's no faithfulness, no kindness, no sacrificial love. But if we could see God's great love for us, scandalous as we are, broken, desperate sinners as we are, that he comes to us like this man came to this woman to love us, then what would happen is, is it would turn us into people that would love others the way Hosea loves here. And there are three things in particular that I just want to close with. Uh, because we need to come to the table. Uh, but let me, just, let me just describe for you what I think a life like this looks like. First, I think it means that you move out, you don't turn in. Becoming Hosea means you, turn, you move out, you don't turn in. Scott Sauls, who's the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, wrote a blog this week about shame. And here's what he said. He says, shame keeps us preoccupied with ourselves and inattentive to the needs of others. It tells us we need to fix ourselves before we can focus on serving others. It tells us we must get our act together before we can act on behalf of friends and neighbors, and especially the poor or the lonely or those on the margins, before we can give attention and energy to paving paths of flourishing for others, we must first develop our own sense of purpose and our own sense of self. Charity starts at home, we tell ourselves. And it's true. Shame turns us inward. It causes us to be self-obsessed, which, of course, is the enemy of love. If I'm always thinking about me... Well, then, obviously, I'm not thinking about you. (laughs) If I'm always looking out for me, then I'm not looking out for you. Shame causes us to turn inward. But if our hearts begin to get healed of its shame, then hesed love, as it comes into us and then flows out through us, moves us out. Look at what God says to Hosea, verse 2 of chapter 1. Go, take a wife. And then again, verse 1 of chapter 3. Go again, go, go. Showing hesed love means going, becoming Hosea means you pursue people. You don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them. You don't wait for them to call you and invite you to dinner. And when they don't, throw a pity party. You initiate. You move out. You don't turn in. Secondly, I think becoming Hosea means that you risk with grace. You risk with grace. Hosea marries Gomer, the prostitute. 
And she, maybe not surprisingly, returns to her prostitution, but Jose doesn't write her off. Instead, he forgives her. He shows her grace. There's no indication that he moves forward holding her sin in the past over her. And we might read the story and conclude, kids, Jose is a big dummy. That's dangerous business, what he did. And grace is risky, isn't it? Because there's always the danger. There's always the danger that you might be taken advantage of or it makes you vulnerable. But the story teaches us it's worth the risk. So risk being too forgiving. Risk being too patient. I know I'm on the edge of bad theology here, okay? But just bear with me. Risk being too accepting of sinners. Does that make you uneasy? Can you feel it? Oh, it just feels dangerous. Can I say it's only little sinners that get knotted up about that? Big sinners sigh, big sigh of relief. Our knee-jerk reaction to sin should not be cynicism or critique. It should always be towards grace because that's what the people who know they've been shown grace do. And if you have any doubts, twice in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus quotes from Hosea 6, and both times it is in defense of his risking with grace. The religious folks around him were quite bothered by how comfortable and at ease he was around tax collectors and sinners and how ready he seemed to disregard the rules for the sake of showing grace and meeting needs. And he said twice, go and learn what this means. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. See, it's a lesson all sinners who have shown, who've been shown grace know well. But third, and lastly, becoming Hosea means that you move out, you don't turn in, that you risk with grace, and then lastly, it means you stay put when it gets hard. In 6.4, Hosea 6.4, God says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Your love is like the morning dew. And the metaphor is obvious, isn't it? He says, your love is fickle. It's there one minute and then gone the next. The sun comes up and the dew burns away. It's like that. You're in until it gets hard and the heat gets turned up. And when that happens, then you're out. And that's how most of us love. But not Hosea. Hosea's love didn't wither when things got hard. That's when he showed up. That's what Hesed love is. It's what it does. It's steadfast love. It's stubborn love. It's love that stays put when things get hard. It's love with no exit strategy. Now, let me ask, does that feel hard to you? I hope it does, because it is. And here's my admonition to you this morning. Look in faith to Jesus Christ. Remember, you're Gomer. Don't try to become Hosea without first becoming Gomer. Don't try to love without faith. It's impossible. You can't do it. There's no power. Faith is the power source. Faith is the energy that we need to go and love others well. And so come to this table this morning, and at this table see God's great love for you. Receive from him the promise of his Holy Spirit, his heart beating in the place of your stony heart, giving life to your deadness. Come to this table, rest in his love, and let him turn you into a Hosea. Let's pray together this morning as we prepare to come. Father, would you do that this morning as we gather around this table and celebrate this meal together? Would you captivate our hearts with your love? Would you undo our rebellious souls, that we might uh, flourish, as Hosea promises, underneath your love and protection of us? Would you quiet our rebellious hearts with your love? Would you cause us to hear, give us ears to hear you singing over us as we gather around this table to celebrate the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? And would the result be that our broken hearts would be healed and that we would be a people who would bear fruit, the fruit of love, 
towards others and towards our city in a way that would honor and glorify you. That's our hope and prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Know your heart well enough to know that as we send you now, and that's what this is, as we send you into the work of Hosea-like love, whether it be uh, to go on a church plant <laughs> or uh, to care for an aging parent or to struggle through a hard marriage or to love your neighbors who don't like you very much, whatever it might be, know your heart well enough to know that you're, you would immediately move out into that without first doing what that song just told us to do. We must first rest our weary soul in Him in order to find the strength. We must first turn our faith to Him and rest in His unfailing Hesed love for us because that is uh, the very place where we find the strength to deal with the unevenness of love as we find it as we go throughout our lives. So the promise of this benediction is, uh, is a, a warning even almost or a, an admonition to not leave this place without first yet again turning your heart uh, to Him in faith and receiving from Him what you need to go and to be faithful to what He's called you to. So receive the benediction this morning as you've fed upon him at this meal, so now receive his promise yet again of his unfailing love towards you, even as he calls you to go in unfailing love to others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.